unit working with older people. And at that time, I thought, I never want to do something like that. That's going to be awful. You know, everybody's going to be so, they're going to be suffering so much. It's going to be such a depressing job. There's going to be nobody who's going to get better. But I decided to try to take the job because I thought, well, I could always try it for two weeks, you know, and move on if it didn't work. And so, um, so I ended up taking the job and ended up really enjoying it. And in part because I saw how this treatment team came together and they recognized that there were so many factors that went into these people's mental health and many factors that could lead to their improvement. And I saw many people you know, get better and leave the hospital and, and be reintegrated into the community. So I, I, it really inspired me to see that health in later life can be you know, biological and cultural and, and physical and mental and all of these things can come together and we can also have lots of ways to improve it and bring in the community to really help people in later life. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Becca Levy. She's a professor of epidemiology of social and behavioral sciences at Yale School of Public Health, and she is a professor of psychology at Yale University. She is a leading researcher in the fields of social gerontology and the psychology of aging. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Becca Levy to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Becca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to join you. Yeah, it's great to have you. I'm super excited to to dive into your work. It really fascinates me because there is one thing that's inevitable for all of us that are living today, and that is us getting older. Every single year, we're going to get older biologically. I'm sure we might experience some different things physically, psychologically, emotionally, but I have a feeling that we're going to unpack some, some misconceptions about this whole thing. So I guess to start off, I want to do a little fact or fiction. So fact or fiction, is age really just a number or like what is it? So age is a number, but it also has a lot of implications by every culture. Uh, we think about aging very differently depending where in the world we are. So it's, it is a number, but it's a number that has a lot of meaning to us. Because you hear a lot that like specifically you're, you're like 40 is the new 30, 50 is the new 40, 30 is the new 20. And like when people are saying that, do you think it's because they feel better mentally? Do you, do you think they feel better physically? Do you think they're trying to like shift the narrative around aging? Like what do you think causes that perception? The idea of, of saying that it's lower, that um, I, th I mean, I think part of that is claiming aging at a, at a, at a younger age. So I think and w there actually is some evidence that our health is improving as a population as we get older. So a 70 year old today is actually more healthier than a 70 year old 80 years ago. So there are a lot of ways that aging is improving. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess with the medical advances and just the bigger focus on health and wellness that's come about in, in recent years and just showing the importance of sleeping better, reducing stress, I can imagine that that's helping people to feel younger um, as they're getting older. Um, one of the things that really caught my attention when I was perusing through your book was 
and by the way, your, your book is called Breaking the Age Code, was when I was looking through and I saw that like, like a senior moment is a common misconception. Like we, we all think about having a senior moment when maybe we see our, our parents or my grandparents like, like forgetting something or doing something that they, they wouldn't have done like 20 years ago, or you often will hear people saying that like in the workplace or at home. So like, what is the misconception around a senior moment and what actually is going on in the brain? So the idea of, the, of a senior moment has this conception that memory, all memory declines as we get older, that's sort of packed into that expression. Uh, but we know that the science just doesn't match that. So you're asking about facts or fiction. So that's definitely a fiction that all memory declines in later life. So we know that there are many different types of memory and some of them stay the same, like procedural memory, like ability to like ride a bike or do things that are sort of more routine. And then some actually improve in later life. So for example, learning vocabulary continues to grow for many people as they get older. And we also know that there are older people who have excellent memories. So that was actually one of the things I really enjoyed in writing Breaking the Age Code was it gave me the opportunity to talk to all different people throughout the world who experience aging and had these stories that are you know, very illustrative of the science. And so, for example, one person I had the chance to interview was this 84-year-old actor named John who took on this memory feat of trying to memorize a 60,000-word poem. <laughs> and one of the ways that he actually was able to do this is he had his own positive age belief of a cellist playing beautiful music in his 80s and 90s. So when he sat down to do this memory task, he actually thought of this wonderful image of aging and that inspired him and motivated him to actually accomplish this great memory task. That's really fascinating. And you talk a lot about like shifting the narrative and this positive age belief in order for us to live longer. You rewrite about how like just believing the fact that aging is is a good thing will help you live longer. You talk about like these misconceptions around like what happens when we age. So like I, I kind of want to start with like how do we begin to shift that perspective? Because I think a lot of people they think about when they think about aging, they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting closer to death. Uh, I'm going to lose my memory. Am I going to be able to like walk the way I did 20 years ago? Am I going to be able to perform new tasks? Am I going to be able to like remember what I did like three weeks ago, like whatever it is? Like, how can we begin to shift that narrative so that when we are getting older, we can enjoy the process and even live longer? And I think that fits into some of your themes about thinking about adversity and flipping it around. So I think what I have found in my research and what I present in the book are about 15 evidence-based tools that are really easy for anybody to pick up. But to give you an example of something that seems to be quite powerful is to increase our awareness as a first step because these age beliefs are everywhere around us, but they're often hard to notice unless we develop the skills to distinguish those that are negative and false and those that are positive. So one thing we found that's very powerful is to do something called age belief journaling, which involves for one week writing down every image of aging that comes up in media, in television, in movies, in streaming, in talking to friends, anything that comes up related to aging and has a portrayal of aging to write down when it comes up and then write down whether it's a positive portrayal or a negative portrayal. And then at the end of the week to really process all of the places where these age beliefs came up and all of these portrayals and how many are positive 
and how many are negative, and also to notice when they're absent. So we know if people don't see themselves represented in everyday life, in media and marketing, it can make them feel devalued. So noticing when older people are included, but also when they're excluded can be a great way to start to become aware of these age portrayals and then to flip them around and to claim the positive ones. So what do you think is the most, like in, in talking to all these people and in your research, like what's the most common like negative age belief? Like, is it death? Is it showing signs of aging? Like, what is it? And so I think some of the most common ones, unfortunately, have to do with cognitive and physical decline. So that seems to be the theme that comes up. If you go to a uh, store and look at the birthday cards, a lot of them make fun of the idea of old age as being a time of, of different types of decline. So I, I think that and that's it's a particularly harmful message, because as you were talking about earlier, it's scary to, to, be, to come in contact with all of these messages that repeat about how there's all this decline, which may not you know, often does not match people's experiences. But when they see all these messages and birthday cards and in advertisements and, and even in children's stories, I think it reinforces this negative message that we really need to become aware of and discount it when it comes up. Right. And I know you talk a lot about like societal like changes that need to happen in order for us to shift the narrative around aging. But I just think about myself and maybe people who are listening to this to say, okay, like, like, what can I do like on my own or for my family or for my loved ones that are around me to to help them age better in the process so that they don't experience memory decline or I mean, cause I'm sure there's certain things you can do that can help mitigate some of the stuff that will just come naturally with age, right? Right. So we know that. So, for example, in longevity, we know that about 25 percent is due to our genes, but 75 percent are due to non-genetic factors or factors that are in the environment or things that we can actually control. So I think that 75% piece is really important to think about because one of those pieces that we found, I found in my research, is that we can control are these messages about aging and we can both discount some of the ageism that we see in everyday life and find ways to overcome it, but we can also embrace some of the positive images. So I, I think we all have um, positive portrayals of aging that we've encountered from our family, from literature, from history. You know, there are these wonderful examples of people that we can pull on and also have in our repertoire, uh, you know, of images of aging that can really support us and help us as we get older. I love that. And one of the things that that I've heard through the years and I wanted to know if there's any data or science to back this up is the importance of like purpose and being connected to something like you see a lot of people that retire super early in life and they end up getting depressed or they end up having like lack of meaning just because they were so used to being in this role where they had this this job for 20, 30 years or they were parents of kids that have now moved away. So do you do you see that is an important thing for people to do is to maintain a sense of connection to something in order to age better? Yes. So I think that is really important for people to find, you know, a sense of purpose or meaning, but that can mean completely different things for, for different people. So I've, so for example, in writing Breaking the Age Code, I had the opportunity to think about a lot of different examples of people that have found meaning that have benefited them. And some of them are like famous people like Mel Brooks and Morgan Freeman, who've you know, found ways to br bring meaning in their later life. And also just some people like had a chance to talk to a mushroom hunter in California who had this passion for being outdoors and embracing ways to 
understand new types of mushrooms and new ways that they're growing in different ecosystems. And I had a chance to talk to this famous choreographer, Liz Lerman, who thinks about creativity as a as a big place to jump in to develop new ways to find meaning. So, and, and a lot of the cases of people that I talk to develop new examples in later life. So sometimes it involves connecting to something that you did earlier in life and, and revisiting it, but sometimes it involves finding something new, which is, you know, I think later life is a great time to figure out what some of those places of meaning could be. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think, like you said, meaning can mean a variety of, of different things, right? Like I think of some people that I know that just worked at a company for like 30, 40 years, and they did that you know, majority of their life. And then when they retired at that point, they then really didn't do much. And I, I've seen people like that, that I know kind of become not, I mean, I guess stagnant. I don't know if that's the right word, but just maybe not is connected to themselves, maybe not as upbeat about life. And I think a lot of that stems from just not being able to reinvent themselves and find something else to occupy their time that they're, they're passionate about. One of the things that, that really blew my mind in reading your book and researching your work was this idea that just changing your belief around aging can actually help you live seven and a half years longer. So if you could explain like the research behind that and like, like why, ex like what exactly is going on in the brain or physiologically that causes that? So the research that you're talking about, looking at how these age beliefs can contribute to longevity, it actually started when uh, I was in graduate school and I had a chance to go to Japan to study why it is that Japan has the longest lifespan in the world. And the I really wanted to see if I could find anything about the culture that we could actually control ourselves. And the first thing that I noticed when I arrived was how differently older people are treated in Japan than what I was used to, you know, growing up living in the Boston area. So, for example, I saw these different ex uh, ways that older people are celebrated. They're, they have a national holiday celebrating older people. A lot of centenarians and super centenarians who are living to 110 and older are celebrated like rock stars on, on television shows there. So uh, I became very interested in the relationship between these age beliefs and longevity. And then uh, when I came back to the United States, I had the opportunity to go to a town called Oxford, Ohio. And everybody there talked about, they gave, they wrote down their age beliefs about 20 years ago. And what I did was I matched those age beliefs to survival information that I got from the government. And what I was able to find is that those who had taken in more positive age beliefs at the beginning of the, of the study had a seven and a half year survival advantage over those who had um, who took in more negative age beliefs. So we actually have evidence that you know what I observed cross culturally exists within our country as well. That these age beliefs can have a really powerful impact on on health and longevity in later life. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to my friends at Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon is cereal reinvented and it is my favorite cereal company on the market. Why? Because Magic Spoon cereals have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, and it's only 140 calories per serving as well. Outside of the impressive nutrition label, the cereal also tastes amazing. The best way to try it is through the variety pack, which comes in four delicious flavors, fruity, frosted, cocoa, and my absolute favorite, peanut butter. 
So if you are anything like me and just love a good bowl of cereal, or if you're a mom or a parent looking to have a quick and healthy breakfast option, Magic Spoon is for you. Oh, and one more thing. It's also keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. So go to magicspoon.com and enter in Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. Again, it's magicspoon.com and enter in promo code Doug at checkout to receive $5 off your first order. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. So we have I found that if people take in more positive age beliefs, they have lower levels of cortisol, so the main stress biomarker. I've also found that it can have an impact on brain biomarkers that can, are related to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So those, I've found that those who take in more positive age beliefs, if you follow them over time, those people, we found in one study with some, a group called the Baltimore, which is near you, <laughs> Longitudinal Study of Aging, we found that a study that looked at brain autopsies, that those who had taken in more positive age beliefs decades earlier, when they got into, you know, 60 or older, when, when their brains were examined, it was found that those who had more positive age beliefs had fewer plaques and tangles, and they had a larger hippocampus. So those are all markers of brain health. Wow. Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy what just shifting your mindset can do. And I'm really glad you, you talk about this because I think this can be applied across the board that, you know, the way you think about something can definitely impact like the way your life transpires, like as a result of it and, and moving forward. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. I want to talk about like something that I think a lot of people who are listening to this have struggled with, and that is like admitting how old they are. So do you think that the reason that people are, can be so self-conscious about their age is because of this negative bias that is towards people who are older? Yes. And I, I think there is a, a cultural difference. So I think in some cultures where aging is embraced, I think people do feel more comfortable and proud of, of saying what their age is as they get older. But I think you're right that I think part of people suppressing their age in our culture as they get older, I think, is are, are these negative messages you know, about aging. So people prefer to keep it quiet. But we know that if, when people kind of embrace aging or different aspects of aging, that that could be part of owning it and feeling you know comfortable and going forward. Yeah. I guess it's funny because some people that I know, it's like I will get like a plate thrown at me if I bring up their their age, right? Even though like it's, I think at times it's in a way that is 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 harmless. But I think given what you've stated and your research, I can see why 
so many people can be ashamed and self-conscious about how old they are, especially especially if they're like getting past like their, their quote unquote prime. Have you dove into any research or talked to people psychologically about how to get more comfortable with death? I haven't studied that in specifically, but I, I think it's the case that in some sort of more age positive cultures, cultures that embrace aging, I think part of it is also often a culture that sees the whole life cycle as being connected to nature. And there, as we we're just talking about, that fear that sometimes comes with aging is less likely to be part of, of getting older. So, so I think in that way of feeling comfortable with with death and feeling like it's we're all part of one big life cycle of that starts with with birth and we keep on aging until later life and de death is part of it. I think uh, I think that is a big part of, of some of the age positive cultures. Okay, cool. I want to get into one of the other misconceptions I think about aging that I came across and that is about mental health and people who are older because I would think that people may believe maybe they don't believe that when people get older maybe just by way of the aging process, their their mental health declines, they become maybe more depressed, they become more anxious, more irritable about certain things. So like, why is that false? So one of the most common age stereotypes, both in the general population, but also among healthcare providers is that mental illness increases with later life, particularly depression. So there's a big misconception that depression is common and a normal part of getting older. In fact, what the research shows is that if you look at different age groups and the prevalence of de uh, depression and anxiety, there's actually a lower risk in later life. It's still, there certainly are many cases of it, but the risk is slightly lower. You know, and actually, this is something that inspired me to want to go into this field in part because when I started my first job, I worked in a, a psychiatric hospital and I was really excited right after college. I had a degree in psychology and, and I really wanted to do something with it. So I really wanted to work at this psychiatric hospital in, in Boston where I was living at the time. And when I applied for a job, the only position that was available was in this geriatric unit working with older people. And at that time, I thought, I never want to do something like that. That's going to be awful. You know, everybody's going to be so, they're going to be suffering so much. It's going to be such a depressing job. There's going to be nobody who's going to get better. But I decided to try to take the job because I thought, well, I could always try it for two weeks, you know, and move on if it didn't work. And so um, so I ended up taking the job and ended up really enjoying it. And in part because I saw how this treatment team came together and they recognized that there were so many factors that went into these people's mental health and many factors that could lead to their improvement. And I saw many people, you know, get better and leave the hospital and, and be reintegrated in the community. So I, I, it really inspired me to see that health in later life can be you know, biological and cultural and, and physical and mental and all of these things can come together and we can also have lots of ways to improve it and bring in the community to really help people in later life. It's fascinating. And I think it, it makes sense because, I mean, I think that like as you get older, you, you learn a lot more lessons, you learn what matters, what doesn't matter. You may learn not to sweat the small stuff as much as like a lot of people like myself do at times. So do you do you believe that that's the case that that the way the re, one of the reasons that people who are older have better mental health in in some cases is because they've just learned 
so much wisdom and lessons along the way? Yeah, that's a great observation. So in Breaking the Age Code, one of the things that I write about are some of the ways that we actually have a strengthening improvement of some of these aspects of mental health that, and actually older people, there's some arguments uh, by psychiatrists that older people are particularly at a good place in their lives to benefit from from mental health treatment. And, and so as you said, there may be a better perspective taking. So we know that as people get older, they tend to have a better ability to solve conflicts, both interpersonal conflicts, but also come up with solutions for larger sort of geopolitical conflicts. So there's this wisdom that increases with later life. Also, life review tends to increase. So people tend to get better at kind of analyzing what's happened to them over time and and get better at thinking about different phases of their life and how to learn from them. So yes, so there are a lot of skills that seem to increase in later life that can really help us. So I guess along those same lines, there's the old adage that, you know, when you're starting to get some gray hair, it's a sign of wisdom, right? It's like, a, I mean, I don't know if it's a, if it's true or not, or people just use it to feel better about themselves with some of the things that come along with, with aging. But I would guess that there's certain markers that you can see physically or certain markers emotionally or mentally. You can tell that maybe you are getting older and something's de- deteriorating in a way that maybe needs some, some help. Like, are there certain like markers that people should pay attention to? that can tell them if if they're aging? So, I mean, I think think the markers, I mean, so when people should should reach out for for different types of treatment, is that what you're asking? Well, I guess let me rephrase that question. Like, I know that like in certain times when people will, they'll start to notice them getting older by their the color of their hair changing or maybe just other physical ailments that come along. Maybe they're starting to get a little bit of arthritis in places they didn't have. Like, are those signs of aging or are those just, can that just be just genetics or just natural processes of life? So I think, right, I think there can be health challenges in later life that can be due to many different things. So I think, you know, one of the disadvantages of negative age stereotypes is it makes us think when there's some kind of health challenge our first thought is, you know, it's it's due to something that's inevitable and can't be improved and can't be changed. But we know most health conditions, mental health conditions and physical health conditions can can be improved with the right kinds of treatments and the right kind of interventions in, in later life. So I think, you know, being skeptical and, you know, and taking different changes seriously is really important. And it's really important to talk to healthcare provider when anything is noticed. But I think also it's important to think about, is there something about it that could be due to something in everyday life? Could it be like somebody has back pain? Could it be because they were shoveling, you know, that that weekend and strained their back? And is it something that could be improved by, you know, resting it and taking care of it in a certain way? I mean, so I think thinking about that's one of the one of the things that I talk about in the book is it's important to think about different challenges and think about the broader the broader picture of it and then in different ways that different things that could be contributing to it. And some of those are they things that we can actually take care of and improve, I think is an important part of our health. Uh, that's, that's a great observation and a great point because you're right. Like I think sometimes when we get older and something comes up, whether it's a physical ailment or something changes in our body, the first thing we might point to is, oh my gosh, this is just happening because I'm getting old or I'm getting older. Not the fact that maybe you did something two days ago, three days ago, or maybe you're just really stressed out 
And that's why like something's happening with regards to your body that's impacting you. So being able to take a look at that in real time, I see this disconnect between my grandparents' generation and my generation. I'm 34 in, in technology specifically, where a lot of my life, a lot of my peers' lives, I mean, people that are slightly older, slightly younger than me that I connect with, we're immersed in technology. And I know technology has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. But nonetheless, I see people that are in my grandparents' generation who just aren't equipped to to use technology in the way that we do. And 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 with that said, they've you miss out they miss out sometimes on opportunities to connect deeper with with people like myself and maybe their kids and, and their friends because they don't know how to use technology. Do you think as a society there's anything we can do differently? to help narrow that gap, to help that generation be able to communicate with my generation in a way that's effective. I think you're right. That is one of the strongest stereotypes perhaps about aging is that old age is a time where there's technology challenges. And so I think there's a couple of of things that I think are important about that. One is on a societal level, I think there are things that we can do. So there's research that shows that the digital divide is particularly strong with the older generation not having access to internet, especially people who live in poverty or live in marginalized communities tend to have much worse access to internet, which we know is, is, you know, so important in today's society. So I think, I think on a technological level, we could connect people much better. Also, another piece connected to that is some of my research is on social media. So I have found that, unfortunately, Facebook is a place where there are a lot of negative messages about aging that are not prevented on a, on a, so Facebook doesn't include older people in the group that is protected from hate speech on some of their Facebook sites, which is another place where on a societal level, we could make a big change. But also, I think our beliefs about aging that technology is not embraced in later life is often false. So we know that a lot of older people are using smartphones every day, are on the internet every day. They're actually some of the inventors of technology are people in their 70s and 80s who you know made these amazing, amazing discoveries in technology. Yes. So I think actually one person I spoke to in writing the book was this young man who is a college student who plays football and he became active in the anti-ageism movement. And but before he he became active in that, he said or one of the ways that he became aware of how ageism was operating in his own life was he said we had to do with technology. So he said he realized he suddenly had this epiphany that when a friend of his his age asked for help on something with technology technology, that he would show them how to do it so they could do it for themselves the next time. But he noticed that when he was helping um, an older person, like a grandparent who said, can you help me with my my, um, my smartphone? I can't do something. What he would do is he would take this phone and do it for them with the assumption that they wouldn't be able to learn it. And then he realized that, why did he think that? Where did that come from? And then he realized, okay, well, he, if that can he actually show them in the same way? And he, and he found when he made that switch that he was able to also do, also be aware that technology was open to, you know, to every generation. Well, yeah, no, and I agree. And I, I think that at least I'm aware that people who are in that generation do know how to use technology and are actually quite good at it. I just anecdotally am speaking from my relationship with, with my own grandparents and selfishly asking because for instance, the other day, I'll send my grandmother, I sent my grandmother a text at like, I forget, it was sometime early afternoon. And I get a message back like at midnight 
about like dinner or something. And then I get a call the next day from my grandfather who was like, yeah, I heard you texted last night at midnight and said you couldn't come to, or you had to change the time on dinner. I was just like, no, like, and that was just one small example of like, but they, they don't. And they're just not, I mean, maybe they are just so, I don't want to say caught in their ways because I know that it's probably another stereotype too, but I think they're so routine in what they do. And I think this is probably common for some people, which I want to get into next that I've tried to to help them embrace technology and look at some of the positives that can come with it, like being able to FaceTime like their friends that don't live in the state or being able to, like my grandfather's really into like investing, being able to pull up like current stock prices instead of having to drive and go to like a, the library and check it out, which I know that just, it, it gives him something to do, right? So I kind of, I want to get into the, the routine and the impacts that it can have on aging. Like, do you think it's best for for people when they they retire and they, they find themselves with more time on their hands as they're getting older is staying in the same routine positive or negative for them you know i think as we get older we actually get more differentiated more different from each other so you know i think that there are probably many people who benefit from routines and that really gives them a sense of order and kind of reduces some of the changing stimuli that are can be overwhelming at times but i think there are other people who actually benefit from more novelty in everyday life and and you know shy away from routines so i think that there there's probably and probably something in between you know is the ideal of having some routine but you know finding ways to break the routine as, as much as possible. So, so yeah, so I think that that's probably, yeah, an individual difference. But if, I mean, if you're, you think your grandparents, they like the routine that you're talking about? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I haven't, I don't, I don't know how honest they're being about it or not. I think, you know, they just, they don't really want to bother me with, with their problems, right? I think that's just like anybody, but I do often like wonder as their grandson and somebody who cares a lot about them, like, like I, I worry at times that they're not like trying new things or, you know, I've encouraged them to maybe like take a class on how to maybe use technology and try to show them the benefits of this so that we can begin, we can efficiently communicate more because I know there's been times where and my grand, my grandmother's gotten a lot better at this, where she used to only have her phone on like for emergencies, like at certain times and it would be off the rest of the time. And I'd be trying to like, cause I'm so used to texting or calling to be like, Hey, like I'll be there in a half an hour. Or do you guys want to grab lunch tomorrow? Like a couple of days would go by and I'd be like, I try, I'd be like, I'm trying to get a hold of you. And they're like, Oh, we had our phone off. And I'm like, well, why do you like, why do you have your phone then? Like what good does it do? But I'm not seeing it from their perspective because they grew up in a time and they lived most of their life where this stuff didn't like run their lives the way it might run my life and my peers and people in my generation. But do you think there's like a benefit like cognitively for people to continue to stimulate their mind? Like is, is working out important when you get older? Is it is doing things that reduce your stress? Like is all the same things we know that are important for the average person in the younger years? Is it even more important as you get older? Yes, I, I, mean, I think all of the things that are important to stimulating our minds do continue. We know in Breaking the Age Code, one of the things I write about is how brain plasticity keeps on growing as we get older. So there's still lots of room for making new connections. And, you know, both in terms of our culture environment, but also in our brain, our neurons are making new connections as we get older. But I also just wanted to go back to something you said, which, so I think your story is, is lovely about how you're trying to, you know, reach out to your grandparents in different ways. Because I think 
one of the things that, you know, I have found, my colleagues have found, our intergenerational contacts are so important to promoting health for both younger people and older people. So there are all these examples, you know, in the workplace and in families when those connections happen, that there's just a lot of benefit for both both sides. But I think, unfortunately, our culture is becoming more and more age segregated. So for a lot of younger and older people, there's just not a lot of opportunities to interact in everyday life. And there's a lot of sort of separation of the generations in many different ways. So I think finding ways to connect is is just so important and to keep on trying to how to overcome the different ways of communicating or finding common ways to communicate, I think is so important. And they've gotten so much better through the years. I mean, I do commend them on that. But I do look back and you know, I, I look back at like some of the stuff that they may have missed out on as a result of not having like an iPhone, being able to FaceTime people, their family that lives out of state or, or st- and stuff like that. And, you know, and, I, and like I said, I care about them a lot and I spend time with them frequently in person. But I've also had had conversations where I've tried to embrace them to embrace them to utilize technology more for their own benefit, whether it's researching stuff online, whether it's finding like my grandmother finding a recipe to, to try to cook or whether it's like I said, like the, the stocks, the investing part. Then I've also learned from stuff from them. And I want to point this out that like how inundated I can be sometimes in technology and in my phone and how like sometimes that's not good either. And so that they've been able to show me that and I've been able to talk to them about like what it was like when they when they grew up, like what, what, how, how much were times different? Because just like they sometimes can't understand and have empathy for what I may be going through or what my brothers or whatever, like I can't, it's hard for me too because I, I didn't grow up in the 1940s either. So it's definitely given me an opportunity to reflect and come close, bring us closer together. I mean, we're already really close, but just being able to have these open-ended conversations, I think is important for anybody. You talked about like the, the segregation of age and one of the most obvious things that I think of, and I don't know if you think there's this is harmful or not, is like how we we differentiate like pricing for seniors. Like you talk about, like you get a different price at a when you go to a movie if you're a senior. You get the senior citizen discount at some at some like local fast food places. Different places you go into um, like restaurants, they're they're more like some of them are, are known to be where the older people kind of hang out. At least here where I live. Do you think that's do you think that's beneficial to have these discounts and different pricing structures for for seniors? Or do you think it just emphasizes this divide that you're talking about? I think both both can happen. So I think there are there are cases where I think sort of honoring older people can be a good thing. So I think there are times so as I got on a plane the other day, you know, and they announced people who had been, you know, veterans or people who had been, been in military service were going to be honored by getting on the plane first. You know, I thought that's that's great. You know, to to honor those people and and, and sort of reward those people by that, that that benefit. And so I think there are times where offering some kind of benefit to older people can be good. On the other hand, I have seen cases like on on menus where it will say, you know, this discount is for people who are over the age of sixty five and under the age of twelve. The part of the menu that's puts together yet yeah, children and older people. And I think 
I think that can be somewhat infantilizing. So I think there's probably ways to do it that honor older people, but then there's also ways that do it that actually do the opposite, you know, make people feel like they don't want to be part of that group. They don't want to be thought of as somebody who's a child. So, so yeah, so I mean, I think looking at each case probably separately is, is a healthy thing. So my next question, I guess I want to get into is like, let's just say you have a family member that like, I mean, let's just say somebody who's listening to this has a, has a mom, has a dad, has a grandparent that has like reached a point where maybe they just can't live on their own anymore. Like they think they can't live on their own anymore. And I know there's a lot of pushback with people that you have to almost like drag them out of the house into a community, into an assisted living before them doing so. So like, is there a certain time that you think where, or somebody is ready to make that transition? Is there certain symptoms? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I would think for each person, it's it's a different case. And I, I think also knowing somebody over time, so knowing what's different for that person, what's a challenge for that person is probably, you know, really, really important. So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, again, though, I think trying to think about whether some of those changes are things that can be improved. Could some of those things be due to these uh, larger structural challenges? Could they be due to ages in the person's experience that they're not able to join in different activities that they that they would like to? So I think really examining what the challenges are and really talking to the person, you know, so I, I think also empowering the older person themselves in their own lives and to, to evaluate where they are, I think is, is really important. Yeah, you're right. I think it's definitely individual. And, and I like how you touched on that. There's a lot of proactive things that can be done, like in the moment and in the midst of that before making this like light, massive life altering decision to take somebody out of a home that maybe they lived in their whole life. Maybe they lived in 20, 30, 40, 50 years and putting them in a community where there's a lot of people that they know are going there for the same reason that they're going there. And I'm sure that that can have some sort of stigma or like, ne- like negative uh, perception in their minds about what's going on. You mentioned that there's these, like there's, there's like 15 evidence-based ways to change our perception of of our age beliefs you mentioned journaling which i think is a great one what's what's another what's another one that you think is super easy to implement and very effective yeah so right so we did talk about age belief journaling another one that i think is easy to implement at any age and to start doing right away is to develop what I call in the book, a age belief portfolio and to think about positive age beliefs or positive examples of older people that you know about and writing them down. And the ideal is to kind of is to come up with a list of people who exemplify different qualities that you admire. So one person you could think of who has a great sense of humor, it could be another person who tells great stories, it could be another person who is a great runner. Um, so, So it could be just a whole set of different people who have different qualities that you admire. And so, you know, once you have this list, it's good to think about a couple of specific factors that you admire that you'd like to strengthen that that person exemplifies. And so I think by coming up with this portfolio, we can really draw on them in different different parts of our lives as we navigate and try to think about, you know, how do we want to improve ourselves and what's an example of somebody who we admire who is able to do this in their own lives. 
That's so fascinating. And it, and it makes sense, right? Because I, I mean, I, I immediately, as you were sharing that, like older people that inspire me were coming to my mind, whether it be, you know, Warren, somebody like Warren Buffett, or whether it be even like my grandparents, like we were just talking about, or just other people that, you know, despite their age have accomplished some amazing things, both personally and professionally. I guess the, the so like the last thing I want to get into when it comes to to aging is let's just say that you have a a person that is in their 30s in their 40s that is just biologically getting older like what are some certain things that you think have been proven to help with longevity other than changing the way we changing our belief around aging that, that can help keep us younger longer we talked about these different methods of developing positive age beliefs. And I think also part of it is to develop a community or a either develop or find a community that's free of ageism as much as possible and that embraces aging as much as possible. And I think finding that balance of developing our own positive age beliefs, but then also reaching out to a community that, that supports that. You know, and um, something, just to give you an example of something of a community that I think works really well in this way. So in writing Breaking the Age Code, I discovered this wonderful community in Zimbabwe of grandmothers who have come up with this system called the Friendship Bench. And what they do is they are trying to improve the mental health of their community. So these are grandmothers, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and they meet with people in their community of all different ages on these friendship benches and who are having these mental health challenges. And they try to listen to their problems and advise them and help them. And it's been found to be incredibly effective. So it actually has been found in some studies to be more effective than sort of traditional ways of treating um, depression, different types of mental health problems. But what's particularly beneficial, I think, is this combination of a community that has positive age beliefs, and then these grandmothers who are empowered to take on this task. And then they, in turn, are improving the positive age beliefs of their community. And so it becomes this cycle of being of having this back and forth of helping the community and improving the positive age beliefs. And then that in turn is improving their own health. So, so yes. So I think that combination of things that we can do on an individual level and then also on a societal community level are really important. Yeah. Community is everything. And I think spending time with people that embrace like optimism, embrace positivity, embrace bettering yourself, embrace supporting each other, like through and through, I think is, is vital no matter what area or what, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what you're trying to accomplish. And I think it's, it's so true. Um, all right. So this is my last, last question. I know that I said, this is my last question. I wanted to talk about psychological versus biological age, because you'll hear some people say, oh, I'm an old soul, or I'm a, I'm a kid at heart still, despite, you know, their biological age being a bit older. So do you think that there can be a difference between someone's biological and psychological age? Yes. Yeah, so actually, one of the interesting things about aging is there really isn't any single biomarker that we can take to know somebody's biological age. So I think 
there is this an integration of biological and psychological age. And I think, you know, as we talked about, so much of health and longevity is not due to the genes that we're born with, but they're due to these factors that we actually control. So some of the psychological factors that you mentioned. So I, I think there's this real, so what I've found in my research is that these psychological factors that we can control can have a uh, strong influence on on our, our physical health and and that in turn can feed back and you know reinforce positive psychological factors so I, I think the and then the community is also part of the bigger picture of where this all takes place that can reinforce some of the positive messages about aging so so yeah so I think I think they, they are very much you know integrated in, in our health that makes sense and I'm glad I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think that you know it's important for people to focus on what they can control, because I think with our genes, a lot of times we can't control the genes that that were dealt. We can't control the hands that were dealt. What we can control is some of our lifestyle choices, who we spend time with, and what kind of things we're doing on a day to day basis, how we're perceiving the situation that we're in, and, and that sort of thing. So, Becca, I wanted to thank you once again for coming on. This is a great conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. I encourage people to to check your book out. It's called Breaking the Age Code. So if people want to connect with you, if they want to learn more about the book, if they want to buy the book, where's the best place for them to do so? Yes, thank you for the shout out for the, our new book, Breaking the Age Code. So my, my book is available now on Amazon. And then I also uh, just worked with a web designer. So we now have a, a new web page for the book and it's becca-levy.com. So that has a number of independent booksellers as well that are carrying the book. So thank you for, for mentioning the book. You got it. And for those listening, what I invite you to do, just like I try to encourage with every episode, is to share a takeaway with something that Becca said with regards to aging or how uh, shifting our mindset can actually help us live longer or the importance of uh, community or whether it was something that she said about what the misconceptions about what happens when we age or, you know, making sure that we're doing what we need to do to improve our cognitive function, whether that be like exercise and, and those things, like whatever it was, tag her and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.